Well, hello, friends. You're listening to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. I'm Chris, the Communications Director at Cap City. If this is your first time listening or you just want to say hi, you can email me at ctaylor at capitalcitychristian.org. Well, happy Father's Day, or it was Father's Day when we recorded this message, but we know it won't be whenever you listen to this podcast. But if you're a dad listening right now, I hope you had an awesome Father's Day. You know, sometimes Father's Day can be complicated. Sometimes our dads are great, and that's awesome. I'm blessed to have a pretty fantastic dad. But we don't all have those good dads. So, what does a good dad look like? Well, Jesus told a story in the Bible that illustrates exactly what a good dad looks like. Let's get right to today's message with our special guest speaker, former senior minister at Southeast Christian Church, Bob Russell. Father's Day is not nearly as big as Mother's Day. Have you noticed that? The florist doesn't do as much business. Hallmarks doesn't sell as many cards. And church attendance is kind of normal on Father's Day. But on Mother's Day, the church is filled and the preacher praises mother for all of her sacrifices and people get teary-eyed. But on Father's Day, we just toss dad a little bacon for breakfast and then we fry him in the sermon. We scold him for being such a poor role model and he walks away feeling guilty. One little boy on Father's Day came out and said, Mom, that must have been a really good sermon. Dad was hanging his head way down low today. Dads don't get much respect, not just in the church, but in the media. Uh, remember that classic movie uh, with Chevy Chase, National Lampoon Vacation, when uh, Clark Griswold takes his family miles and miles to Wally World and he gets there and it's been closed for the season and he doesn't even know it and the whole family gets arrested or something. Or watch ads on TV that portray dad as totally incompetent. My son Rusty calls them the stupid dad ads. Do you ever notice that? Uh, the kids are always smarter than the dads and teach him how to operate the computer. Dad can't find his way to the destination and mom has to rescue him. And everybody giggles at the stupid dad. Now, you never see mothers or wives portrayed that way because that wouldn't be politically correct. We hear about absentee fathers and deadbeat dads, but never about missing mothers or messy matriarchs. It's just kind of open season on dads. It's okay to make him the buffoon and the target of ridicule. We've fallen a long way from father knows best to Homer Simpson. A few years ago, Newsweek magazine had an editorial entitled, Overdue Thank You to My Dad. And it admitted that the media's portrayal of dads were so often negative that we forget to pay tribute to many good dads. And that's true. The fourth commandment begins, Honor your father. God ordained three institutions for the orderliness of society, the family, the government, and the church. And the family comes first. The family is the basic building block of society. And we're seeing what happens when the family falls apart. One of the problems we have in the inner city. In 1960, 80% of inner city kids had a father in the home, but now 80% do not. And the result is, is tragic. That's why it is so disturbing to see the institution of marriage and the institution of the family under attack. Marriage is totally disregarded or it's easily dissolved or it's dramatically redefined and the foundations are being destroyed. So what I want to do this morning 
is I want to pay a tribute to dads. I want to underscore the importance of fatherhood by studying the father in Luke 15. Now, in Luke 15, we normally focus in this parable on the prodigal son. But I want to focus on the dad because he did a lot of things right. In fact, since he represents God, he is a perfect father. Now, no earthly father is perfect. But your dad probably exhibited some of the same qualities as the father in this parable. And these are the characteristics that you should be thanking your dad for exhibiting and contributing to your life. Or dads, these are the characteristics that you should seek to emulate as you mature. Luke 15 and verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Here's the first thing I want you to see that this father did right. He generously provided for his family's needs. He generously provided for his family's needs. The father of the prodigal son was obviously pretty well off. The younger son would get one-third of the inheritance. There was a special treatment to the older son. He'd get two-thirds. But one-third of the dad's inheritance was enough for this young man to go and live extravagantly for a period of time. And then we read at the end of the story that there were hired servants on the estate. There were extra garments and rings. There were fatted calves. There were resources to hire musicians and throw a spontaneous party when the occasion arose. So this father was not only extremely well off, he was also very generous. The younger son asked for his inheritance in advance, and the father gives it to him. The NIV study Bible says it was highly unusual for a father to give the son the inheritance in advance of his death. A father might divide the inheritance on paper, it says, so the boys would know what they could expect. But to actually give the money prior to death was almost unheard of. I have two sons, and if the younger son said, Dad, I know when you die I'm going to inherit a little money, I'd like it right now. I'd say, you just lost it. You know, you're not going to inherit any money. You don't get it in advance. But this father is so generous, he gave it to him, and that's over and above what was expected. The first responsibility of every father is to provide food, shelter, and clothing for his family. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. As soon as a little baby is born, if a dad has any kind of character, he immediately is almost overwhelmed with a sense of responsibility. This little infant is totally dependent on me for food and for care. The U.S. Department of Agriculture Estimated a while back how much it costs to raise a child. The study concluded that American parents earning $60,000 or more spend about $12,000 a year on a child up to two years old. And contrary to what parents might think, the first years of life aren't the costliest. From age 15 to 17, kids cost their parents $13,000 a year. 
And you add up the department's figures for each age, and from birth through high school, the average parent is going to spend a quarter of a million dollars to raise a child. Now, that's not talking about college. And if you spend ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a year on college, if you have three or four kids, you could buy a yacht instead of having those kids. That's why somebody described a father as somebody who has pictures in his wallet where the money used to be. Let me ask you. Have you ever expressed appreciation to your dad for just providing and spending so much on you? Maybe when you were growing up, you complained about your dad's job. He was gone so much, or he had to travel, or you had to move, or he was on call. Activities of the family were interrupted. But be realistic. Every job has its drawbacks. And your dad was doing his very best to see that you were provided for because he cares for you. And chances are your dad not only provided your basic financial needs, but like the father of the prodigal son, he did more than was expected. He was generous in paying for designer clothing or athletic shoes, karate or ballet lessons and music lessons and extra batteries for the toys and $500 deductible when you wreck the car. And a lot of dads have been generous not only with money but with time. We hear a lot about dads who don't spend enough time with their kids, but there are some good dads who really sacrifice to be with their children. Uh, I was talking to Patrick Davis, a friend of mine before, and his daughter was uh, in horse shows. And he said, I would drive uh, miles to see and sit and wait for hours to see my daughter in a two-minute horse ride. And maybe your dad always played catch with you, taught you how to fish, or helped you with your studies, or helped you to learn the computer or something. And the time that he spent with you, you should be grateful for. Uh, I got to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, with Jack Hillary, the owner of Slugger Museum, several years ago. And the executives there were all excited because Bob Feller, the Hall of Fame pitcher for the Cleveland Indians had been there the week before. And he's a crusty old man and kind of tough-skinned. And, but one of the executives at the Hall of Fame asked Bob Feller, if you could go back and relive your baseball career, what would you like to relive? And they thought he'd talk about an all-star game or a World Series. He said, if I could go back and relive my baseball career, I'd like to pay, play catch with my dad one more time. If you had a dad who spent money, took time for you, take a moment today to give him thanks. And if he's not here anymore, you give God thanks that he was generous with you. Well, here's the second thing about this father. He wisely gave his son space when it was appropriate. Verse 13 says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set out for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. This father released his son when it was appropriate to do so. When I was a young man, I used to think, this father was too permissive. He should have said to his son, no, you're not going. I'm not going to let you go. But I suspect now a combination of the boy's age and his rebellious nature persuaded this father, time to let him go. He had no other option. So this father gave his son space to make his own choices even if he chose poorly. One of the most difficult assignments that dads have is to release their child 
progressively when it's time to do so. I've got a friend named Tony who had a beautiful teenage daughter. And he was really worried about her dating, so he made a lengthy form entitled Permission to Date My Daughter. And the form has some pretty demanding requirements. In 50 words or less, what does the word late mean to you? In 50 words or less, what does the word abstinence mean to you? In 50 words or less, what does don't touch my daughter mean to you? And one question was, if I were beaten, the last bone I would want to be broken is my blank. <laughs> and then it concludes, thank you for your interest. Please allow four to six years for processing. <laughs> Fathers instinctively want to protect their children, especially daughters. And it's really difficult to release them, even to see them go off to first grade or then to go off to college or walk them down the aisle and give them away in marriage. I saw a cartoon in which a father, uh, in which a, a, a son is saying to his father, Dad, you're 82 years old. It's time for you to release the business to me. And the father responds, no, son, my dad just gave it to me two years ago. It's hard to release. Gary Ezzo, in his material, Growing Kids God's Way, suggests four transition periods that parents pass through with their children. And the success of each phase depends on the success of the previous one. The first phase is discipline, birth through age five. The primary goal when the child is born for, is for you to establish the right to rule in the mind of the child. Your responsibility, get control of the child. A key word here is the word respect. Every child is born with a sin nature because we inherit the sin nature of Adam. And no matter how cute, no matter how compliant your child, they are at one time or another going to rebel against authority. So your job is to teach them to respect authority, to be submissive to parents and teachers and policemen and judges, and eventually to God, to be able to say with Jesus, not my will, but thine be done. The Bible says in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Now, obviously, the Bible teaches it's wrong to physically abuse a child. But the Bible does advocate the rod of correction or spanking when it's appropriate. Now, if you do that as the child is young, you don't have to do it very often. It begins when the child is crawling and the little baby crawls up to an electric socket and reaches up to touch it. And you say, no, no, don't touch. And the child pulls the hand away and puts his hand back up and smiles at you, say, no, no, don't touch. And they touch it anyway, and you go and you just smack the back of their hand enough to sting, but enough to teach that obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings pain. They well up with tears, but they learn to respect authority. Uh, how many, let me see a show of hands. How many of you in here were spanked as children? A lot of you. Now, raise your hand if you're glad your parents spanked you. Now, okay. Don Loney, a teenage speaker, said his mother had a paddle hanging on the wall in the kitchen, and under it was an inscription that read, I need thee every hour. <laughs> well, the truth is, if you teach a child to respect authority early, you really don't need to very often. Then the second phase of releasing the child is training from age 6 through age 12. 
And the parent is compared to a trainer working with an athlete every day in different settings. The trainer is able to stop, make adjustments and corrections, explaining the reasons for the mistakes, showing how it is to be done properly. Now, the key word here is the word consistency. You establish guidelines and consistently stick with them. You teach them, you say, yes, sir, no, sir, every time. And you teach them, look, when your alarm rings at 6.30, you get out of bed yourself and you get ready for school. And if you're late and you don't do it, then tonight you've got to go to bed a half hour early. And we can have an hour of screen time tonight. And you say that and you mean it. And you're closely enough involved with your kids to know what's going on. You don't make idle threats. You follow through and you teach them priorities and right from wrong. When I was nine years old, I came home from Little League baseball practice one day all excited. I said, Mom and Dad, guess what? Our team is going to go see the Cleveland Indians play baseball. I've always wanted to see a major league game. All I got to do is wear my uniform and carry a sack lunch. We get to go for free. Everybody's going. Well, they rejoiced with me until they looked at the date and they said, Hey, that's a Sunday. Bob, we, we go to church on Sunday. I just this one time, I always go to church. No, we're going to go to church. And I was dev devastated. We drove to church on that Sunday morning. We drove right by where the guys were getting on the bus, getting ready to go to Cleveland for the ball game. My dad beeped the horn, waved. I dove down the back seat. I didn't want the kids to see me. But you can tell I got warped for life. My parents taught me consistently that the worship of God is the most important thing in life. And I don't understand parents today who say, well, my son's on a traveling team, so we're not going to be here for the next six weeks because, you know, he's going to be... Yeah, in the major league someday. He's going to play for UK someday. And, and what you're teaching the child is baseball, basketball, more important than God. The third stage is the coaching phase from age 13 to 19. Now, by this time, the children are in the game themselves. We can send in plays from the sidelines. We can huddle up during timeouts. But we could no longer stop the game and show them how it's to be played. They are now running the plays and making impromptu decisions. So the key word here is alertness. Be alert to what's going on in your children's life at this stage because they're not going to tell you everything. It's just human nature. You need to be observant. Be aware of what's been on the computer and what's in the drawers of their room and where they are when they say they're someplace different. Don't be naive about what your child is doing or is capable of doing. You're the coach. You can't play the game, but you still have the authority to put them on the bench when they need. You can take away the car keys or uh, freedom privileges. I've got a son who is a policeman. And on Friday night, a couple of years ago, he stopped some kids for speeding. They were on their way to a Friday night football game, and there was alcohol in the car, and uh, the boys were drinking, and the girls, he said, had on bikini tops on their way to the football game. Dads, where are you? Your children, as teenagers, are hungry for somebody to set some parameters. And if there are no parameters, they're going to bump up against them looking for them. And that's why they get into drugs and alcohol and sexual promiscuity early, because there are no guidelines. I know if I interview parents, they say, well, times have changed. All the kids are going to unsupervised parties. We can't control them. You know, you can be too strict and drive them away. All the kids are getting tattoos on their foreheads these days. No big deal. Our relationship with them is more important than tongue piercing. Parents have this horrible fear of rejection from their kids. And, uh, 
But you know what? You give them too much too freedom too fast, they'll get bored and push the envelope into more dangerous areas. So wise fathers and mothers give kids progressive freedom as they mature. And you might say, look, when you're eight years old, we may let you go to day camp for a couple of, and when you get to be 10 years of, old, of age, we may let you stay overnight at a friend's house if we know the family really well. And when you're 14, then you can have a cell phone, but it'll have limited capabilities. When you're 16, if you're responsible, we'll let you learn to drive. When you're 17, you can double date. If we know the other kid. And when you're 18, we'll move the curfew a little hour later. Can I stay overnight in a motel room on prom night? No, you can't stay overnight in a motel room on prom night. Why, Dad? Don't you trust me? No, not in a motel room on prom night. I don't trust you. And then when you go off to college, if we're paying the bills, we expect to see decent grades. We're not going to finance the party life. Then, when your kids get married and they settle into their own home, and you're no longer paying the bills, then you can move to the final phase, which is friendship, age 20 and up, and the key word here is encouragement. Let me say a word to those of you who still have young kids. The greatest time of your life is ahead of you when the bills are paid and the kids are grown and the dog is dead. It is a time of freedom. Now, when our children become adults, hopefully they become our friends, and if we encourage them. Even though you're tempted to criticize your kids or impart your wisdom about how they should spend their money or raise their kids and you want to do it voluntarily, you just keep your mouth shut because you've done all the damage you can do. At this point, you you encourage them. I've got a son who's a preacher in Florida, and I watch him preach online. Good preacher. But he he doesn't dress like a preacher should dress. I mean, he come in old wrinkled shirt and blue jeans and tennis shoes. He looks, looks about like Doc when, when he <laughs> preaches. But after I hear him preach, I call him. You know what I say? Good sermon. Because I've done all the damage I can do. It's time for me to be an encourager. A preacher friend of mine had a 21-year-old daughter still living at home, and she asked permission to go to Alabama for one week with her boyfriend. They were going to be staying in separate rooms at the home of a friend, and she said, now, Daddy, everybody's a Christian, but the dad was worried about her reputation and about the temptation and didn't want her to go. But he said to her, you know what? You're 21 years of age. You're going to have to make your own decisions. And she went. And he squirmed. He could do nothing but wait. But right decision, like the father of the prodigal son, sometimes you got to release. Bob Benson wrote, if you want to hold on to your kids, let them go. Then when they come down the driveway to see you, you'll know the only reason they're coming back is because they want to be there. You see, problems arise when we try to skip a phase and become friends with our kids too early. Or, on the other hand, uh, we refuse to give them space when it's time. And there's got to be that balance. And I sense the prodigal son's father knew it was time to give his son more space and let him learn from the school of hard knocks, even though that was hard to do. Well, thirdly, he graciously forgives a serious offense and moves on. I want to begin reading with verse 14. 
After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Now, for the first time, this young man finds out what it is to be without and to be hungry. So he went and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. Now, to a Jewish man, uh, pigs were the lowest of animals. Couldn't get any worse than this. Feeding the pigs, that's like working minimum wage at a car wash today or something like that. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. When the money's gone, the friends disappear. When the famine comes, generosity shrivels up. And I like this phrase, when he came to his senses. He'd been senseless before. He'd been silly. But he came to his senses, started thinking right. And he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. What a dunce I've been. What an imbecile. I left home because I didn't like the rules of my father. And now I'm a slave to a stranger. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but would you make me like one of your hired men? Notice he left home saying, give me, give me, give me, and now he returns home, a humble spirit saying, would you make me? Now, he gets up and goes to his father But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, this is a special dad, but not unlike a lot of dads I know. Now, can you imagine the kind of lecture this father could have given to his son He could have said, you've wasted all of that money already, now you come back here to mooch? No way. Do you have any idea what you've done to your mother? She's aged a decade in this short period of time, and she's worried about you. So now finally we're almost over it, and you come back here and dredge up those old emotions, and you expect us to accept you? How do we know there's not going to be a repeat performance? After all, what I have left rightfully belongs to your brother. You're going to have to go talk to him. And can you explain why you would do such a thing to us? We warned you and warned you about the dangers of sin. And now you go out and look what you've done. You look terrible and you smell like a pig. What an embarrassment you've been to my reputation. I've had to explain to dozens of people, you've made me feel like a failure. That's the lecture that the son probably expected. It's true. But this father loved him so much, he forgave and restored the relationship. In verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a party and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. If you had a dad who forgave a lot of mistakes that you made, You need to be really grateful. And most of us had that kind of dad. And if you didn't have that kind of dad, you create the kind of home where that's possible today. When I was about eight or nine years of age, my dad had a 48 Nash Rambler. I think we got a picture of that car. And why we don't have very many pictures from my childhood, but why we had this picture, I don't know. But here I am standing by this Nash Rambler. And I'll leave that picture up for a second. One Christmas 
Eve. Our family went to Christmas Eve services at church 15 miles away and had six kids, so all eight of us are packed in this car. And I'm sitting as a little boy uh, by the door. Now, if you notice, the car doors on that Nash Rambler opened just the opposite of car doors today, right into the wind. They later dubbed them suicide doors for an obvious reason. But I'm sitting by the car door, coming home on Christmas Eve, and I'm wondering what would happen if I just flipped that handle just a little bit? Would the wind catch it? I was just interested in aerodynamics as a young man, and my curiosity got the best of me, and I flipped that handle, and whoosh, the wind caught it. There was a sound as of a rushing mighty wind. My dad screeched to a halt. I dove for the floor, and my mother turned around, counted those, and said, where's Bobby, where's Bobby? My sister said, oh, mommy's down in her floor, he's all right. My dad got out of the car, leaned up against the car in the middle of the road, and took several deep breaths, got back in the car, and drove the rest of the way home without saying a word. And I knew I was in deep trouble. All the way home, my sisters were saying, what kind of an idiot would pull open a car door going 50 miles? What is wrong with you? We got in the driveway, stopped. I was the first one in the house. I went over and stood by the Christmas tree for protection. <laughs> but my dad stalked in the room, and he stormed right over to me. He grabbed me. And I'm telling you, folks, he gave me the biggest hug I can ever remember receiving. And he kept saying over and over again, sure glad you didn't fall out of that car. I'm so thankful that I had a dad who knew how to forgive. Some of you were forgiven a lot by your dad. Maybe he wasn't perfect, but you did some pretty stupid things yourself. You broke a window with a ball, or you got caught cheating in school. You got kicked off the team. You wrecked the car. Or maybe there was an unwanted pregnancy or a DUI, or you botched a school opportunity. And maybe there's some heated words and some unpleasant moments, but your dad hung in there with you and bailed you out of trouble and continued to love you regardless. Maybe today, if your dad is still living, it'd really be appropriate for you to give him a call or to go visit him and sit in his lap again and say, Dad, I just want to thank you for loving me and hanging in there through all that. You see, the story of the prodigal son is really a picture of a heavenly father's love. God has provided generously for us. He's given us more than we ask or imagine. And he's given us space to do as we please. We're not robots. We can choose right or wrong. We can go to the far country or we can walk in obedience. And when we violated his trust... He's been willing to forgive us and reinstate us to his kingdom. And maybe you need to honor your heavenly father today by confessing your sins and receiving his forgiveness. The Bible says in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite spirit I will not despise, says God. When one of my sons was 17 years of age, he broke a family rule big time. And when I heard about it, I was very upset. I called him in the family room, sat him down, confronted him, and he, uh, to his credit, confessed that it was true. And then he said, Dad, I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. 
But I was so angry at him. I'm not a perfect father. And I began to grind him down. And I said, why would you do that? We know we've warned you about that. Why would you even run around with those kids? You, what do you think is going to happen if you keep doing that? And to his credit, he didn't bolt out of the room saying, I'm tired of living in a preacher's house. I can't live up to your expectations. I'm out of here. No, when I ground him down, he broke emotionally. And he put his head in his hands and he sobbed. He said, Dad, I am so sorry. Dad, please, please forgive me. And then he said, could we pray, Dad, or something? Let's get this over with. But when he said, can we pray, I broke. And the two of us knelt by the couch, arm in arm, and we both blubbered out a prayer. And then we stood and embraced. And strange thing, folks, I never felt closer to my son than I did in that moment when he needed and received my forgiveness. God is near those of a contrite heart. The father of the prodigal son ran to meet his son and embraced him and kissed him and celebrated. Charles Swindoll said, God loves the broken heart, the bent knee, and the wet eye. And I think maybe the two finest words that we could hear God utter are the words, forgiven again, would you come to him today and receive the Father's love and forgiveness? 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called sons of God, children of God, and that's what we are.